Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we discuss the algorithmic asylum with Melbourne University academic Piers Gooding. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Welcome, everyone. So, Dan, I want you to give us a bit of clarity now about the story that you're bringing to the table today, which was um, Apple, which has always been a hardware business, I thought, trying to conceive of itself as another um, company that can do ads. What's going on? Yeah, uh, thanks, Peter. Yeah, we've touched on this before, um, but it's gaining momentum. So I thought it was worth highlighting again. Um, so this, uh, what I'm going to talk about today is off the back of a Bloomberg report that came out a week or so ago. And it was basically making the point that Apple is preparing to significantly expand its advertising business. Now, I think as we mentioned before, Apple recently launched display ads inside their news and stocks apps. Um, and they've also recently been scaling up their the ads that appear in their app store to promote third-party apps, similar to sort of Google search ads, if you like, but limited to the app store. And apparently these things are already generating about $4 billion per year, um, which is certainly a lot of money from my perspective, but not a huge amount from Apple's perspective. And apparently they want to make that uh, closer to $10 billion a year in short order. So to achieve this, um, Apple have started dabbling with showing ads inside Apple TV+. Plus. Um, apparently, they've been showing ads for Friday Night Baseball as part of their Major League Baseball streaming for the first time. And there's a lot of speculation that Apple, Apple is going to ramp up its business in all its media apps. So that includes Apple TV+, Plus, but also um, Apple Podcasts, Apple Books, uh, and even Apple Maps. So sort of very following the, the road that was set for them by Google, if you like. So all well and good, um, but the problem here is that Apple is planning on using all the first-party data that it collects from consumer use of the iPhone to offer targeted advertising for this service. So that includes things like location data from iOS, um, interest from what you read in Apple News or listen to in Apple Music, uh, and critically, um, transactions that you might make using Apple Pay, which is pretty much all most of us uh, use now, I think, or certainly most I use. So the important point to note here is that Apple's own products and what you do on your iPhone, basically Apple regards that as their own first-party data and you, you do not have to give them consent in the same way that Apple forced other companies to do when they rolled out app tracking transparency, mm. ATT, uh, a year or two ago. And so I think that's a problem on two fronts. I mean, firstly, I think it's potentially bad for privacy, uh, given I think that most iPhone users wouldn't necessarily know or understand how their data is being used here. And I think if they did, they'd probably have a problem with it. Um, but the bigger concern for me is, uh, well, probably equal concern, is is the anti-competitive nature of this. Um, and what's becoming increasingly clear is that as privacy regulation is ramped up around the world, in, including in Australia, um, it's basically those with the most first-party data win. That's probably an obvious statement. Um, Google have this, obviously. You know, Google Search, Android, Maps, whatever, they have more first-party data, data than anybody. And it seems that Apple, having sort of very made the case for their privacy regime and not running in the ads direction for all of their existence has now decided to go in the exact opposite direction and, and they've realised what a pot of gold they're sitting on with all the first-party data mm. from the iPhone. Now, there is a solution to this, but I'm going to resist the temptation to talk about what I talk about every week and yeah. just throw it out to, uh, to you, Peter. But is this like, so this is almost the whole of internet experience that Zuckerberg's trying to create with the metaverse in that every touch point is collecting your data, but it already happens 
with your iPhone. And because we've never thought of Apple so much as a content provider, although they've always had the Apple Music and I think there's been ads in that. But this is, Lizzie, a bit of an interesting convergence that's almost a precursor to where every big tech company would want to go, which is collecting everything and being the single point of entry. Yeah, I mean, I must admit I'm not entirely surprised. Like Apple has been working towards having an extremely lockdown ecosystem. So if you use an Apple hardware product, it's very difficult to wean yourself off it because it's very difficult to move all your data onto another device uh, and also you're encouraged to make it um, interoperable with your, your laptop or the cloud, whatever it may be. So you're encouraged to stay within their ecosystem. It's made as, e- as easy as possible. And there's definitely boundaries that are set up technically um, in, in design terms uh, as well as to your ability to move around. And that's because it wants to lock people into its its world and use its products and then monetize that. I don't think there's any secret to that. So it can talk about privacy, of course, uh, but privacy here has multiple meanings. And um, one of them here is that uh, you obviously are protected from other companies, say, um, obtaining that data from your hardware. But privacy between you and Apple is essentially meaningless. And that's particularly problematic when there's lots of different businesses contained within the business. To my mind, it is probably a competition issue in that how is it possible that you're able to provide a map service, a messaging service, a telephone service, a photo sharing service, and uh, have complete um, porousness between these businesses in recent years, that wouldn't have been permissible because it's it potentially is different kinds of monopolistic practices, but now it's seen as standard behaviour in, in tech platforms. So it potentially is more of a competition issue than a, a strictly privacy issue. But part of my objective in, you know, being chair of Digital Rights Watch is to be a bit more expansive in our understanding of privacy, that it's about the right to go through the world without being surveilled um, by the government and private companies and to have that data used about you to create an impression of you that's sold on to advertisers or used for advertising purposes that, you know, you can understand how freedom from this is a form of, of liberation of sorts and that in fact companies really have no interest in doing it. How they do it might be different, but the reality is they're all still trying to gain a monopolistic, um, trying to get a monopoly over our attention and then turn that into money. And that creates problems in all sorts of ways. Apple's one offender, of course, Meta and, and Alphabet are, are others, but it's still the same problem. What, what's Dylan. interesting on this though, if I could, just one one quick point, is that if Apple keeps running in this direction as fast as it looks like they might be. What is going to become the reality, though, is that it's basically the operating systems are going to be the ones that are going to have the massive advantage over everybody else. So it's basically going to become, to win in digital advertising, if there aren't any guardrails put in place, is going to be who has an operating system. So it's going to be it's going to be Google and, and Apple only. And that's or, um, or Meta's Oculus, which is really an operating system. Yeah, and obviously that's one of the big reasons why they're, they're pouring so much money into that. It's like they're pouring so much money into that. Dylan made a good point in the chat, actually, about you'd be interested to know where the data is stored. Apple makes a point of principle of saying that the data um, never leaves your iPhone uh, and therefore it is private because what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. I'm not sure that distinction matters that much, though, to be honest, because if you're still using transaction data from use of Apple Pay on your iPhone, that's pretty different from reading news with an Apple News, for example. I think most consumers would expect that those two things are different. And the fact that both of those happen on their phone and that that data can be tied together to serve you targeted advertising, if in fact that's what they start doing, I mean, that's a that's a pretty big uh, change of direction for Apple, I think. I do think interoperability is the, pro- is the solution in part here. Allowing people to move between companies with ease is 
one answer. It's not a total answer, but requiring that companies have interoperable systems, that's something that Apple's opposed because they, they don't, they want to make it as difficult as possible for you to leave. And so mm. I think that's one, one answer that focuses on the rights of, of users to be able to move between companies. I mean, I don't think it necessarily solves the whole problem, but it would be good if it was a competitive advantage of a company that it didn't do this, you know, but at the moment that's just really not possible because the transaction costs of moving are too high. Mm. We better move on. Um, Lizzie, you pointed to what feels to me to be a modern day Kafkaesque um, experience of a dad in the States who has basically been disappeared from Google because he took a photo of a part of his son for medical advice. What's going on? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting story and it's really chilling. So this um, this man's son had a problem with his genitals. He was, a, I think he was a baby or a very small kid. And uh, he exchanged, the doctor asked him, the nurse asked him in advance of the appointment to take a, a photo so that they could consider it via telehealth, you know. And um, his wife uh, texted the photo through and, of course, that set off a, set a bunch of alarms in the automated systems that exist within Google to, to detect child sex abuse material. And he was deplatformed, essentially. He was locked out of his account and it was a, an enormous administrative nightmare. It's interesting, um, Peter, that, you know, when I was running up notes for this, you were focused on the person being uh, removed from the platform and having no recourse, whereas I'm kind of more interested in how these automated systems for the detection of child sex abuse material can be deployed in really problematic ways. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about this in a It might have just been because my Google maxed out yesterday, so I was... <laughs> Deplatform myself. Feeling a bit on. vulnerable. Yeah. Feeling a bit vulnerable. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously part of it. Like, if Google kicks you out, you are in big trouble administratively if you're dependent on their platform, and they encourage you to be dependent on your pl- the platform. You know, so they want you to use all their products. But then, if you get kicked off, it's very difficult to appeal that decision. Um, that's one component of it, and you'd think that the company should invest in allowing people to appeal those decisions. But the other component is there's just this increasing trajectory towards automating the detection of things like child sex abuse material and then potentially automating notification to law enforcement you know we've talked about this before how there's a potential risk for um, particularly young people um, particularly young people exploring the sexuality that might get caught up in some of this you know using this platform for legitimate purposes but then in fact um, have law enforcement notified on them uh, but there's also people like this you know encouraged to get health information I was trying to fit a cloth nappy on Henry the other day and um, my partner was filming a video we were panicking we were going to get booted off Google for anyway I managed to do it um, but you know I was getting advice from the company about how to fit a nappy and I think god like this is very problematic if that's the kind of risk you take because obviously it's lower stakes with what I was doing but for health information this should be uh, this is a very legitimate reason for sharing these kinds of images you know in Australia that's where we're moving towards regulators outsourcing to our platforms responsibility for the detection of this material and automating the process of notifying law enforcement um, because it's just too costly for them to do it Uh, at a more micro level uh, and the rules are too stringent now you know query whether they should just be spending more money on this because that's what they make their billions from essentially automating processes so maybe this is what they have to invest in in human reviewers in in systems that are uh, overseen by humans but i also think there's a problem with regulators saying that you know platforms have to have a zero tolerance approach to this and setting the rules so high that invariably people are going to get caught up in the system um, in unintended ways and face real difficulties and disincentives from using it for very legitimate purposes. I want to go back into that when we talk a little bit about the eSafety Commissioner and their latest edicts. But, Dan, before we get there, there was another related story in the wonderful Amy Denmead news aggregator of interesting um, tech news about a Sydney gym owner who had just been booted off 
Facebook for no obvious reason and couldn't advertise his gym anymore. And while that wouldn't be my chosen place to do the advertising, again, it sort of speaks to that idea that when an algorithm is after you, there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, and I guess it, it highlights again what we've talked about a few times before, and that, and that is that, that these platforms are just so important to our daily lives and also the running of our businesses in this circumstance that when you're kicked off them, it can have really significant impacts, clearly. Um, and the problem we've got is that you're outsourcing the decisions on this to, um, you know, often a, a US tech company based in Silicon Valley with no recourse. And uh, these things are too important to not have any democratic oversight over them now. Mm. So um, if you squint, it does sort of have parallels with the decision which Twitter and Facebook made to remove Trump from their platform after the January 6th insurrection in that they made a decision as private companies to kick him off, which... Except there had been an insurrection on Congress. Like, that's yeah, by probably the way, the I mean, difference I, to, to, the to be clear, I, I, I completely support that decision. Sorry, we can't, <laughs> we can't pile but, on Dan this week after Mariela. No, no, please <laughs> go easy on me. But my, my point is simply that um, I think these, these platforms have become too important and too central to our daily lives for, it to be, for them to be left up to make these decisions on their own without any recourse, without any appeal, without any kind of democratic oversight. And the same thing applies in as with a lot of political discourse like Twitter or Facebook, as it does in this circumstance with Google and this person's running their, not being able to run their life anymore, or the business person not being able to run it on Facebook. So uh, yeah, anyway, I just think, um, I don't know what the solution is other than the, the the respective countries around the world forcing these these companies to be able to take their responsibilities seriously. And then, yeah, and then, you- and then that opens the hornet's nest. I'll just jump into mine and then go back to you, Lizzie. Which is, you know, we feel okay with a with our government taking some measures. We don't know if it's the Chinese government doing it. Um, the, the piece I was going to bring to the table today was around e safety. Um, California lawmakers, I think it's probably a citizen proposition, Lizzie, that's been put forward, but they're considering increasing the regulation on, on online platforms around child safety. Um, so it requires web services quite likely to be accessed by children to conduct a survey accessing the potential risks for users under 18. So to put a positive obligation on the platforms, which is a little bit similar to the latest um, missive from the eSafety Commissioner in Australia, which has issued legal notices on the big platforms requiring their services to provide detailed information about the steps they're taking to meet the Australian government's basic online safety expectations. So it feels, we always talk about norms, rules and laws. It feels like this is a rule that's a bit like a law that's being pushed through in both California and Australia, Lizzie, but we might be on a different bit of the spectrum here, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on, I totally respect where you come from in talking about the, um, you don't want to, define your regulation by outliers and stop legitimate usage of platforms but where where should the line a where should the lines be and then b who should set those lines yeah i mean i think this is a really difficult question on one level from a governance perspective because what the safety commission here has done it's got the online safety act which was passed last year and Essentially, what it requires then is that industry sections of industry each come up with a code, and then uh, the eSafety Commissioner considers whether to 
to essentially endorse that code and it becomes then a requirement that companies within that section of the industry comply with it. So it's a slightly convoluted process, but the idea is, I suppose, that it's essentially the rulemaking exercise is outsourced to the industry itself with review by a regulator. And uh, the regulator here is not sitting on her laurels. The e-safety commissioner is very forthright that she wants a um, quite stringent industry codes. And the Online Safety Act is so broad-ranging. I mean, this was a big criticism that we had of it at Digital Rights Watch um, when it was making its way through the parliament. And um, the e-safety commissioner tried to reassure us. It was it, It's it's very uh, broad-ranging. The powers are, are very broad, very wide. Um, content that is R-rated could be removed, right? And you could be booted off, off a platform for, for platforming R-rated content. So that's, that's more stringent than it is in the real world where, you know, you can go and see an R-rated movie. That, that's the kind of micro example of how broad-ranging these powers are and then industry is encouraged to do this code. Now, government has an interest in offloading that responsibility onto industry, but the consequence then is that they have to rely on these automated systems because it's so stringent, they're going to over um, be over-censorious rather than more liberal because they don't want to take the risk of, of being uh, getting in trouble with the relevant regulator. And there's consequences to that. So if that's the approach mm. you're going to take to lawmaking, there's consequences. There are other mechanisms, I suppose, in terms of having a rights-based solution. There are ways in which the Online Safety Act, I think, I think, could have been structured slightly differently to give people the right to appeal a decision like that and enshrine that in the process as well rather than just, um, you know, having industry come up with the who gets booted off and whose who's content gets deplatformed or whatever it may be. But those suggestions that we made at least weren't taken up and that's pretty disappointing to me. I think we end up moving towards a much more censorious society and I don't think that means that we have to be... But can I just push back? In the real world, in the real world, there are places kids who are under 18 can't go. They yeah, can't go oh to no, pubs. Yeah. They can't go into a TAB. Um, yeah. Why shouldn't there be age limits in the online world just like there are in the real world? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Like I'm not opposed to um, kids not being allowed to go into pubs or whatever. I mean, I think there should be. Some are you are you fully libertarian? <laughs> no, but I don't think you should advertise alcohol to children. I don't think you should advertise gambling to children online. And we still know that that happens. So that's a different problem, right? That's advertising. That's not shutting down Access, online spaces. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the other component is how do you test how old someone is? Because this is not just happening in Australia or even in California. This is also in the UK as well. And we know that this is something the Safety Commission has talked about age verification. Now, how do you do age verification meaningfully? Do you use facial recognition to do that? Because it's pretty pretty awful, in my view, requiring children to... to um, no more awful and... than them accessing... <laughs> yeah, but there's a person there moderating that. I think these things seem really easy in the abstract and then actual application of them uh, that's fraught with problems. No, I just I mean, fear I... that you end up waving, waving the white flag on any sort of you know, responsibility to kids. Maybe when Henry's a bit older and he's letting his fingers do the walking, you'll change your tune. <laughs> Maybe like you, I'll think the answer is actually spending quality time with them rather than a tech solution to this social problem. Yeah, and there's not one, but, gee, <laughs> what do you reckon, Dan? Maybe you and I are on a unity ticket this time. Yeah, for once, maybe Lizzie's going to get polled on today instead of me. It's um, <laughs> very strange dynamic. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I am. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I, I don't, I, I can't think of a better way to do this. Uh, I mean, I think Lizzie, with respect, you and I do differ on the fact that I think there does need to be identification of individuals on these platforms. And if there was meaningful identification of individuals that signed up to these platforms, then it would be easier, at least not perfect but easier to identify whether someone was under 18 or not and therefore you could be more precise in 
uh, the restrictions that are placed on those people that are that are children. Um, I, I can't think of a better alternative than how we're going about it in Australia here, where you don't want government coming in and necessarily making specific decisions around content and what content can stay up or come down. But there, at the same time, there does need to be more transparency and more obligation on these different companies to be able to take the responsibilities of harmful content on their platforms seriously. So this seems like a, a good step in the well, first step, perhaps, but a good step in the right direction. I mean, did, did, do you agree or am I? Am I oh, am I yeah. I mean, that? I think some of this stuff is, uh, again, like it's easy to think of it in a high level, but what's harmful content? Like we're going to talk in a little bit about mental health and how platforms are, are harmful for people who are experiencing mental health problems or people who are in distress, right? So what's harmful content? Advertising is clearly harmful content when it's predatory industries. That's a problem that's very easily solvable for platforms. You know, it should be very easy and straightforward to prevent children from being exposed to that kind of advertising. But that's not what's being discussed, right? It's being hmm. discussed like as though the key problem that children face online is is the exchange of child sex abuse material. So we're thinking about regulating this. Oh, from but that also, young boy, young boys' access to pornography and the impact that has on their relationship with girls. You know, we've spoken about some of these things in the past, like. I just am concerned sometimes that we wish away a lot of the problems that are clearly there, right? Yeah, and sometimes I think we we think that technology can solve those problems without mm. working out the social dynamics first. Like I don't disagree with you. There's um, lots of potential problems with boys accessing pornography before they're ready for it at a, at a young, very young age. But I'm not sure the answer to that is to give the eSafety Commission expansive powers to de-platform whole variety of different things you know Dylan's waved the white flag by the way on young boys and porn (laughs) well I didn't say teenage I think before their time like I'm not anti-porn either I mean that's a whole other discussion but the point is like do you approach this with a regulator give them expansive powers to do what they like with industry and come up with quite a censorious code that incentivizes deplatforming people or do you start to talk about how we can have a social response to this rather than say a technological one and why that might be more effective sometimes i think it's really easy for policymakers to think up a tech solution that then allows them to wash their hands of the much more complex problem that we're facing and mm. and that that's my worry and that's barely part of the discussion because to raise a concern about being under um, zealous about uh, dealing with child sex abuse material online, which is a really serious issue, don't get me wrong, um, but it's very difficult to have room in the conversation to talk about that, and that seems like a shame. Can I can I just add one quick thing before we move on? Yeah. Um, so we've we talked about the harm of young boys watching too much porn, and I think that's that's an obvious one. There is another harm, or lots of other harms, though, that, that are specific to the to the platforms, right? So probably the most obvious one is. Um, what was revealed by Frances Haugen on Instagram and young girls uh, having lots of mental health issues as a result from spending too much time on Instagram. I I guess what I liked about this step is that I I guess the trade-off is because it's broad, you're relying on each platform itself to identify the harms that are specific to the platform and taking action against those specific harms. I can't see a way that you can do that without the powers being quite broad. Am I am I missing a trick? Like, oh, what? I, I, I take that point. I suppose what then goes with it is surely appeal rights and properly facilitated decision making that allows you know people who are caught up in the system to to gain access to their rights to be able to enforce their rights is a component that was I think is just obviously sensible if that's your approach, right? But it was completely ignored, right, in the in the drafting of the Online Safety Act. So. Sure. I mean, I'm not I'm not discounting that. Part of the problem with the Francis Hagen example is Facebook making young girls feel bad about themselves is 
like integral to their business model. That's what keeps people on their platform. You know, that kind of misery, um, I think, is not just uh, ancillary to how they do business. I think it is a big part of it. They knew it was happening and they don't care, right? So maybe this company is so dysfunctional it shouldn't exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? Maybe if a company is prepared to sacrifice well-known harm to children repeatedly for years to make money, maybe that's a company that shouldn't be allowed to exist. I mean, the answer is not necessarily... I'm going to call time on this debate. I reckon it's time to bring Piers Gooding in, um, one of the authors of Digital Futures in the Mind. We've just been talking about tech solutionism and mental health impacts of um, digital platforms. So it feels like it'd be a travesty not to bring you in at this point. So g'day, Piers, and thanks for being part of today. Do you want to give the, the audience just a bit of a, a um, background into how you've come to write this report and what you're really trying to look at here? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm a long-time listener and first-time caller. My um, research background is looking at disability-related law and policy and mental health-related law and policy. But I suppose in the last few years, I noticed a massive trend toward efforts digitising forms of care and forms of mental health services in particular. Um, So I was um, able to get some funding to look at the rise of algorithmic and data-driven approaches to to the mental health system and to mental health services uh, and to consider some of the legal and political and economic issues going on. And we, I, I got this great group of uh, co-authors together from the US and, and uh, from, from Australia, and we basically concluded after our two-year inquiry that there are sort of two pathways for the future. And one is the extension of the best responses to mental health and crisis support that exists today that are augmented by, you know, quite selective use of data-driven technology. And down the other is basically a digital asylum for the 21st century. And it's characterised by surveillance and control and a kind of digital segregation. Um, And it extends all the worst kinds of features of current approaches to mental health and fuses it with some of the terrible features of the current information economy. And you've touched on um, several of them in the previous discussion i mean the stuff about uh, facebook and instagram and, and meta's work I, there seems to be some efforts there to try to adjust content to improve mental health but i think that's a diversion from the types of things that uh, you were discussing and mm-hmm. and you know there's evidence and reports from the australian in 2014 that executives were bragging to advertisers that they could pinpoint moments when teenagers and, and children uh, were feeling worthless and insecure and despairing and being able to advertise to those um, children uh, in that particular state. So mm-hmm. I think it's a real diversion to simply focus on mental health content in a real direct way. So say maybe self-harm materials when there are these much broader implications for the social fabric that have absolutely disastrous impacts on uh, individual and, and social uh, flourishing and well-being, I suppose. It, it's a really timely paper. Um, one of the things that really struck me during the pandemic lockdown was the public health warning started to come out saying, get off your social media platforms. It's only making you more anxious at the same time as there was a big push in effectively AI-based counselling like that better health model. So did you look at that that sort of mismatch between the way algorithms sort of prey on us 
being in a state of heightened anxiety and then this promise that they could calm us down at the same time. Yeah, we we did. I suppose it comes back to that idea of techno-solutionism of sort of, you know, technical fixes for complex social issues. And, you know, there's probably no more complex issue than a social issue than individual sort of despair and existential anguish and the kind of um, individual and social consequences of lockdowns and a global pandemic. I mean, look, I think there's a few things going on in that dynamic. And I should just say that information and communication technology uh, has a pretty powerful role to play in, in, in providing sort of ensuring people get support. I mean, telehealth, which could include phone-based crisis support, but also text and video conference and so on. I mean, that's been found across many studies to produce equivalent outcomes to face-to-face services. Therapeutic Alliance is rated just as highly. Uh, so pe- there's, there's a real demand there and there's a kind of cost effectiveness, particularly for service users in regional areas. And there was a bit of jostling about whether... Um, psychiatric teletherapy could be included on the MBS um, when there were some changes during COVID. But certainly, I mean, more of our lives were driven online during the pandemic and and some of the mental health consequences of that, I'm sure, um, were were exacerbated. But, you know, there are just so many flow-on effects there. There's massive investment in behavioural health technologies uh, and a massive flow of capital You were talking about Apple earlier. Apple has partnered up with a uh, biogenetic uh, company or biotech company called Biogen, as well as the University of California to explore using sensor data like mobility, sleep patterns, swiping patterns to infer mental health and cognitive decline. Um, And that raises all manner of, you know. uh, Particularly when you line that up with your other, um, another part of your report that looks at discriminatory hiring policies on peoples whose digital profiles come up suggesting they're susceptible to mental health issues. That That's right. And there are so, like, I mean, you could even ask whether epistemologically you can actually determine someone's inner state from their swiping patterns. But I think what you're pointing to is that regardless of the accuracy of those predictions, there remains the real possibility of harms based on, on this kind of data, even if those data are false, misleading or, or inaccurate. And go back to some of Lizzie's points about appeal. I mean, if if, I, if we were using technology and we were deemed by these um, algorithms to have some kind of cognitive decline, have we any way to contest that to make sure that it's not passed on to someone or somebody uh, from whom it could cause um, serious harm to us as individuals. And I just don't think those kind of robust um, governance si- si- systems are, are, are even remotely in place. I've, I've seen parallels with a lot of things that you're talking about there with what has become fairly standard practice in the corporate world of, of doing some kind of personality test before you're offered a job. Like You get to the final stage of an interview and you do a personality test. I've certainly had to do a few over the years and they still hire me most of the time against their, <laughs> against their better judgment. Um, but I guess it's not hard to see that this this is kind of that on steroids, right? And it could it could be seen to go further and result in real discrimination against certain kinds of people. Did you see any evidence of that in in, uh, in your report? Absolutely. I mean, some of you will be familiar with Virginia Eubank's um, uh, book and, and she, she talks about a case in the US of a person named Kyle Bem and he was subject to those kinds of personality tests um, and he had graduated from an Ivy League university, but by virtue of, um, I, I suppose, answering honestly, probably in those tests, um, his 
history of interacting with mental health services was used to refuse him uh, or red light him when it came to jobs that were uh, reasonably sort of um, low end of the labour market, really. Mm. Um, and so there are explicit examples. And the only reason he found out was because his friend worked for one of the companies and so was able to reveal that he had been red lighted. Uh, and his father happened to be a lawyer, so took uh, the case to uh, under under the Americas with Disabilities Act. So I think there are explicit examples, and and you can tell by the nature of that case that you know he he had a father who was a lawyer. He he was only found out because he had a friend who worked for that company. That it's almost certainly happening to to many other people, but it's just not coming to light. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that threat is is real. Uh, and it's expressing itself in other ways as well. For example, criminal justice agencies sharing non-criminal mental health data about people, which is then weaponized against them in the future. So in Canada, there were municipal police uh, that shared information with a national database, uh, a national police database about people who had attempted suicide. That was then somehow passed on to the US uh, authorities and was used to refuse Canadians with a history of engaging with mental health services entry into the US. So there are serious um, risks with this kind of information coming to light. And we haven't even spoken about insurance. uh, And that's obviously a major issue as well, uh, because there are known examples of of insurance discrimination and often in, in lawful ways as well. Mm. I mean, it's a massive disincentive to get care as well, the more people know about this, which is hugely problematic. One of the recommendations that you've made in there talks about the involvement of people with lived experience of mental illness and um, experiencing mental health crises in the development of this kind of technology that affects them. And really, that sounds like a lot of different types of technology. But if we are talking about, say, uh, technology that's integrated into mental health care, for example, I wanted to know whether you'd come across anyone that actually did that. Is this at all common for um, people who have lived experience to be involved in the development of this technology? I I mean, I don't know whether it would be common in somewhere like Facebook in terms of developing things like notification systems for self-harm and stuff, but maybe not at all, but uh, I would imagine that at least integrating this into mental health care, you would expect that there would be some consultation. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know whether that's what you found. I mean, look, the good news is that there are good examples um, and there are good examples of, of people with lived experience being involved in governance as well. I mean, even Australia um, has developed digital mental health standards. They're voluntary standards that have been set up by the Australian Commission on um, Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Now, you can talk about the effectiveness of voluntary standards, but at least I could pretty safely say that they did a, a, a good job of consulting and involving people with lived experience in the development of those standards. Um, and there are other examples where that's been done in practice. But I mean, to go back to your point about Facebook, it's really just hard to test the veracity of their claims that they have involved people with lived experience. So Facebook has set up something called AI suicide alerts where they automate a process of content um, uh, examination, I suppose, looking at when people express some kind of suicidal intent. And they use that to dispatch first responders. Now, in most cases, the first responders are police and police have a disastrous record of engaging with people in uh, mental health crisis, particularly in the US where the majority of this happens. But They've been shown to be using this technology in other countries as well. And they say that they had lived experience advisors, but there's no way of really testing the veracity of those claims. And and certainly there are lots of 
concerns people have raised about that process, which might suggest that it wasn't the most robust. Uh, what can I say about that more? But we also did some empirical research uh, where my colleague Timothy Cariotis and I tried to conduct a survey of all of the academic applied research that uses algorithmic and data-driven technologies in mental health context, algorithmic in particular, because we were looking at machine learning and AI. We found that only 3% involve people with lived experience in any meaningful way. Um, and again, my background's in disability law. The disability movement has long um, used the slogan, nothing about us without us. And mental health is increasingly being viewed within that broader cross-disability movement. So I, I just don't think it's anywhere near enough uh, to, to actually suggest that there's sort of robust community-based uh, input by those who are most affected. Um, Piers, you also look at the uberization of the um, mental health workforce. And I, I'm interested in the linkages you see between the employment models and the, um, the standards of care and the general mental health state of a society. Sure. I, I, look, I think this is a massive issue and it's the same for disability-related care. Uberization of mental health is a, is a term that I saw uh, used by Hannah Zeven in her work on the history of teletherapy. Uh, but it essentially is something that most people who use the internet might have come across. I mean, many of your listeners will have been advertised to by um, companies like Better Health, um, which offer a sort of uberfied mental health counselling service. Um, and I, it, you see all the same kinds of problems that uh, appear in a, well, Uber um, and other kinds of platform labour uh, where there's a squeeze on the so-called producers, which in this case are counsellors or therapists, uh, and then an appeal to users or people who are in crisis who are, who are then constructed as users and appeal to them based on reduced costs um, and it's often sold as a way for people to get access full stop to some kind of therapy um, by virtue of a sort of denuded public health uh, system. So it's obviously much more the case in the US that these kind of platforms exist and they're used by people who don't have ready access to, to therapy. But we know that's a problem in, in places like Australia as well. So there's a serious risk that you'll see all the kinds of problems that arise in the gig economy. And this applies in, in, in relation to disability care as well. I mean, I, I think we were speaking before, Peter, about the US Labor Bureau saying that by the end of this decade, one of the most common occupations will be a personal home care assistant. Now, so this is a, something that will almost certainly uh, be subject to the kind of platformization and, and gig economy that is facilitated by these. And I'm sure, Lizzie, you've got lots of thoughts about the, the labor law context behind all this. Yeah, totally. I did. I did want to ask you though, just just to wheel back one or two of your points um, that you were talking about just then. By the way, I find this absolutely fascinating. I think you're doing a really good job of explaining what I imagine is quite complex research in really accessible ways, and it's a fascinating field. And I'm really grateful for this work that you've done. Um, uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was you were talking about the the failure of, of universal access to sufficient care, and there's a really um, troubling example in the US of a private company um, offering a service called Crisis Text Line for people in distress, and then it turns out they um, it was led by very reputable people in this field, and it turns out they were using the data collected to then build a for-profit product that was aimed at assisting with 
customer care consultants to be more empathetic and they were selling that to companies. I wondered if you wanted to talk about that because I wonder what what, what is ethical use of this kind of information? I, I mean, for putting for-profit to, to one side, obviously there's also some utility in sharing data for Absolutely. research. And, and and you know, there's an example in Australia as well where I, I think a number of patients who had a particular condition, I can't remember which, were given a, a letter to their GP to encourage them to become part of a study if they wanted to. And there was a bit of an outrage about this that was a privacy violation. But to my mind, that seemed like a relatively legitimate way through a GP to communicate to somebody and to use that medical data, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong. And I wonder what you thought about whether there are ethical uses for mental health data that comes out of um, mental health service providers, for example, that can improve care uh, and what kind of guardrails we might place on that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's so much to unpack there and I fear we won't even have time, but um, yeah, the crisis text line example is an, a great one just for being able to unpack these. Very troubling, as you say. So this is a crisis text line that was set up as a not-for-profit um, and was in recent years directed by Dana Boyd, who um, was a Microsoft researcher, set up data and society. And it was a not-for-profit and it was, I think by 2019, it, it had received or facilitated 105 million texts for people in crisis. It's essentially like Lifeline, but people use it in, in texting. Um, and Originally, all users had been reassured they will never have their data on sold. Um, and then that all changed in the last couple of years. And this all came to light in January. And Dana Boyd was originally trying to justify it, say that we were transparent about it by uh, releasing information that this is what we were doing a couple of years earlier. But then backtracked after about a week of public outcry, realising that people just did not accept this. This was absolutely beyond the pale uh, for the public. So they said we were wrong. Now. Dana Boyd, and, and thank you for that post, Amy, in the chat. There's a quite an interesting exploration of whether that kind of information could be used. Well, first, whether that kind of data could be used in a way to support the not-for-profit initiative. Now, there's lots of questions about that that, you know, could be justifiably asked. You know, not-for-profits need ways to sort of fund their activities. I think what's really troubling in that case is that in 2020, Dana Boyd wrote a letter to the FCC uh, at the US government saying that they should not set up a public crisis text line because the not-for-profit that she was running could do that work and it could be subsidised by um, tech philanthropists and so on. And so effectively convinced the FCC that it wasn't necessary as a public initiative. And that's classic sort of Silicon Valley uh, move political moves of of essentially trying to step in to a denuded public system. You know that system has been undermined because if there's not enough resources there, and then they use that as a claim to um, have some sort of tech provider step in. So then to spin it off and monetize it, I think that's really troubling. But to go to your point about legitimate use of some of these resources, I think you're absolutely right, and this is a live conversation amongst people in the disability movement. Uh, around data governance, because you could take that kind of proprietarian identity-based kind of, you know, this is my property, this is my data, it shouldn't be used for anything, and I need to be informed about every single form of usage. But that goes against its use as potentially a, a social democratic resource or some kind of um, common resource to have public benefit and common benefit. I, I've got a colleague here, um, Dr. Jake Goldenfine, who works with... Um, 
an academic in the US, Salome Viljuan, who's who's written really well on this, on, on sort of, you know, moving beyond this kind of data as property or as some kind of element of rights-based personhood uh, to something that could be seen as, as a, a, a democratic resource. Then, as you say, to try to get the guardrails for that, well, I think you would need really robust involvement of the people who are impacted. So if crisis text like, line was run by people who are using this service with really robust um, involvement for them if they were to make some decisions about how it might be used uh, for for other means including maybe even sold in some ways as long as that was completely transparent to every you know the people who actually use the service I could see some legitimate uh, use for that but you really need those governance um, systems uh, which again are just there not even nearly there Picking up on what you said there, just perhaps a slightly broader take. I'm, I'm conscious we're about to run out of time, so this, this might take us to the end. But we, we've spoken about on this show a few times before about the fact that a, a lot of the big tech platforms are going massively into health in a big way. And we're seeing this with Amazon. Uh, there's lots of speculation that Apple are also going to go in this direction and Google as well. And it seems that the only way they're going to maintain their share prices and continue to have the explosive growth they've had is if they manage to get a foothold on this industry. And obviously mental health is a really significant part of that. What should we be aware of here? Like what are the risks here? What can we do to mitigate some of the the harms that could come from from what you've seen on on, on a smaller scale in this in, in this space already? <laughs> I mean, it's a big question. I just say you just have to read the report for our full suite of answers. <laughs> but what we sort of essentially said was that you know you need uh, robust governance mechanisms, but I'll also say a kind of rich politics of of sort of um, of mental health, of disability, and and technology, um, and and maybe of health more broadly. Because you're you're absolutely right that there are these moves. I mean, of the big platforms, probably Microsoft has got the most interest in um, mental health specifically. But you know, Amazon has set its own its own pharmaceutical dispensary, and they're dispensing pharmaceuticals in the US below sort of wholesale market rates. So they're, they're, they're clearly not aiming to make profit from the sale of these um, prescriptions just to kind of either monopolise the field or gain information, valuable data about usage. So there's so much that's going on that's problematic. But I think, yeah, it's just ensuring that there is um, a robust public discussion about these things can really ensure that those who are most directly impacted can, can be involved. And I should just nod quickly to my um, two Australian co-authors, um, Simon Cattell and James Horton, who uh, were, were massively helpful in the preparation of this report. This has been a fascinating, but quite—I'm not going to say depressing, but <laughs> what well, can you can you can you leave with any sense of optimism around the way technology and mental health can interact? Please? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean. I saw some, we, we, we've covered some really incredible initiatives that were going on amongst um, people with lived experience of these kind of distress themselves of really good examples of the kind of support that was provided online. As I said, I think, you know, digital mediums are going to be important for the way people access support. Uh, in Kenya, we were in touch with some people who had set up a virtual support network um, in Nairobi where people were with the lived experience and, and family members were actually providing mutual aid to each other during periods of crisis. Um, there are some great initiatives in Canada where people with disabilities gather together with data activists to essentially create a database of all of the um, uh, mental health settings and disability sort of group homes and residential facilities 
to um, advocate then for um, people getting COVID vaccinations and things like that. So there's lots of really good sort of grassroots activity going on. And those, those are the kind of things that probably don't have much kind of profit um, um, exploitability, but which are amazing and really need to be supported um, and, and elevated in these discussions. Because as you say, it can easily become quite depressing and you know, a dystopic vision, but there is a lot of really good work going on and those kinds of examples should really be celebrated. Hey, thanks for your time today and thanks everyone for joining us. What a fantastic discussion. Um, you totally bossed it, Piers, so thank you. It was, um, And thanks for all the work you're doing and your colleagues as well. Um, we're actually doing a bit of work around privacy as a group as well, which we'll tell you a bit more about later, which was why Dan, Lizzie and I were actually in Canberra earlier this week. What a great discussion and thanks for being part of it, everyone. Thanks, Piers. That was great. Thanks, Piers. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall on September 2. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.